Good morning again. As I mentioned, we're going to be looking at a message today uh, in light of the Reformation. Let's go ahead and begin uh, in a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. We thank you for the songs that we just sung to remind us that our salvation is by faith alone, that our authority is Scripture alone, that we come to faith in Christ because of grace alone, through the work of Christ alone, and as we'll sing at the conclusion today, that all this is for the glory of God alone. May these truths resonate in our hearts. May our desires be to bring you glory in all that we do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In 2013, Pope Francis made an offer to Catholics who were unable to make it to Brazil for World Youth Day. And the offer that he made to these Catholics, I read about in an article, and the article was entitled this, Get Time Off in Purgatory by Following Pope on Twitter. The offer was that if you watch the events of World Youth Day on Twitter, you could reduce your total time in purgatory, which there is no real purgatory, but you could reduce your time in purgatory um, when you die. This is uh, what has been called uh, an indulgence. Indulgences uh, are nothing new for the Catholic Church. Uh, In the early 1500s, a man by the name of Johann Tetzel was commissioned by the Roman Catholic Church to sell indulgences specifically for the purpose of rebuilding St. Peter's Basilica. So the church commissioned Johann Tetzel, and he would go out and he would sell these indulgences to the people, and the money that was brought in from the sale of these indulgences were used to build uh, the basilica. Tetzel was well known for a, uh, his famous saying, and that his, his saying is this, once a coin into the coffer clings, a soul from purgatory springs. And so what he would do is he would, uh, this and other little jingles like this, that if you were to put a, a coin in this coffer, in this money box, the soul of one of your ancestors who is in purgatory right now, will be released, and they'll be able to go into heaven. One author notes uh, a little bit on this, uh, of course, the church historian, uh, Philip Schaff, and he says, if this thing will work here, you guys might need to control that in the back, I don't know. He says this to, oh, I'm sorry, I'm ahead of myself now. Uh... He says this, the church claimed that the purchase of an indulgence allowed the merit of Christ and the saints to be transferred to a soul in purgatory, thus shortening its time there. So in other words, here's how this teaching works. Jesus and Mary and all the saints 
have done so many good things in their lives that they had too many good works. They have excess of good works. And now these good works are stored in this special treasure box called the treasury of merit. And what would happen is uh, if you bought or purchased an indulgence, the Roman Catholic Church would go into that treasury of merit, that bank account, and they would give you some of that excess merit, that excess goodness uh, that would apply to you now. And of course, uh, it could apply to yourself, giving you a shorter time in purgatory, or it could apply to one of your relatives who currently is in purgatory and shorten their time in there. Now, one of the more comical stories about Tetzel was that there was this Saxon knight. And this Saxon knight came up to Tetzel, and he says, can I purchase an indulgence for a sin that I haven't committed yet? Can I purchase an indulgence for a sin that I plan on committing in the future? And... uh, Tetzel was offered by the knight 10 thaler, the the standard coin of the day. And Tetzel, of course, he's got to raise money for the basilica, right? And he's a shrewd businessman. So he says, yes, I do, in fact, have authority to sell indulgences for future sins that you haven't committed yet that you plan on committing. But what is he going to say? I mean, 10 thaler, come on. It's going to cost you a little bit. It's going to be 80. And so the Saxon knight says, okay, I'll uh, pay it. And the knight paid his his 80 thaler. He goes about his business. Tetzel goes on about his business. Well, sometime later, this Saxon knight, the shrewd man that he was, returns to Tetzel, and he robs Tetzel of all of his indulgence money. He steals it and leaves. <laughs> you, know, you know what he did, right? And so now the, the, the knight has to go to court. And uh, Tetzel goes, and they, they're in court together. And when the charges are brought against this, uh, this knight, he pulls out his indulgence certificate given to him by none other than Tetzel himself. And he goes, a free man. One, uh, um, Philip Schaff, again, the church historian, summarizes the story by saying this. To Tetzel's complaints, the robber replied that thereafter he must not be so quick in giving indulgences from sins not yet committed. (laughs) Today marks the 504th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. You can see why it was needed. As comical of a story that, as that may be, people were hanging their lives on this kind of stuff. People were desperately trying to free their relatives from what they thought was suffering in purgatory. People were going to places other than Christ and other than the gospel and hanging everything, all of their hope on that. This reformation was needed. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his famous 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door. It was a small flame 
that set a fire forever to change the landscape of church and culture as well. And again, I preached, as I mentioned earlier, a couple of sermons a couple of years ago on the five solas. We currently are preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians, and I thought that it would be a good idea to pause and preach uh, on the Reformation here. I want to preach a message today that I hope will clarify the biblical doctrine that we are justified by faith alone. Okay, so please excuse me for doing something that I've never done before and titling the sermon in a different language, okay? <laughs> the sermon title, Simul Hustus et Peccador, is a Latin phrase, and I've never used another language to title the sermon before, but I think it's appropriate, and I don't want it to distract either from the simplicity of what we're going to be doing here today, and that is simply exploring the depths of what it means to be justified by faith alone apart from works. Of course, as you know, this was a, a major doctrine that came out of the Reformation. In fact, actually, probably is not the best way to say that. It didn't come out of the Reformation. It was kind of uh, uh, restored uh, in the Reformation. Uh, time doesn't permit us to talk about the fact that these Reformation themes not only are all over the Bible itself, but all throughout church history. In the early part of church history, these themes were there uh, all over the place. And so this is a truth, justification by faith alone, that has been there from the beginning. And I would like to, to introduce this topic really in the form of a tension. And that tension is going to be expressed in the form of a question. And really the question that's going to characterize this message today uh, quite simply is this. As Christians, are we righteous? As, I heard no's and yeses. <laughs> See, I told you it was attention. <laughs> As Christians, are we righteous? What is an appropriate way to talk about the status of a Christian? Are we sinners or are we righteous? Which one is it? What is appropriate to talk about uh, the Christian? And if we're not righteous, by the way, the question is, how can we attain it? How can we get righteousness? Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 uh, in verse 14 says this, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without no one, without which no one will see the Lord. Do you realize what this passage is telling us? Nobody will see the Lord without holiness. Nobody. So you better believe that you being holy that better better happen. You better attain. And be characterized by holiness and righteousness. Because the Bible says without that, you will not see the Lord. And it's not purgatory, it's worse. It's eternal conscious torment in a place called hell. This is a big deal. You will not see the Lord if you are not holy. So wherever we are on this issue, <clears throat> here's what we at least know. We need righteousness. We need holiness because we, uh, and just to preserve the tension for a little bit longer, I'll at least say, apart from Christ, we are totally 
depraved and sinful. I want to begin here with a couple of definitions in order to help and guide our message today. I want to briefly distinguish between two views on how we receive righteousness. How do we receive righteousness from God? In what way is righteousness transferred or delivered to us? How do we become righteous? How do we get it? Uh, There are two uh, big views that we're going to talk about today. Uh, And I'm going to just use the terms, but I'm going to explain what they mean. So don't get caught up by the terms. One of them I think you're probably pretty familiar with. The other one you may or may not. Uh, But there is what is called uh, infused righteousness. And there is what is called imputed righteousness. There's infused righteousness and imputed righteousness. Again, don't, don't turn it off right now, okay? Because I'm going to explain this a little bit. Infused righteousness is where righteousness is imparted to us in such a way so as to actually make a change in our lives so that we are actually righteous. You are actually righteous. You are consistently on the inside, on the outside, through and through, your nature, your character, you are righteous. Our character is changed and we can be said to be intrinsically righteous. We become holy. We actually become holy. The real you on the inside is holy, is righteous. You are actually, in all actuality, in practice, in your essence, actually holy and righteous. Okay? You're actually righteous. Now, imputed righteousness, on the other hand, is where you are legally declared to be righteous even if you're not actually righteous on the inside. You following so far? Okay, so think of imputed righteousness, think of a courtroom scene, okay? You imagine that someone has robbed a bank, and they are guilty, and they're in court, and someone comes into that courtroom and says, I am going to pay off the debt of this person who robbed that bank, That person who robbed the bank, though they are actually guilty, now they are declared to be innocent, even though they are guilty. They don't have the consequences anymore because someone has paid that debt for them. And so for this person in the courtroom who has received this imputed righteousness, we might say, their actual character is different that God gives to the believer is actually in reality, changing that person to be more righteous and to be more holy. Okay, so then what's the distinction in belief here? The distinction is that as Protestants, we do not believe that infused righteousness is the basis for our justification. Do you understand that? Or the foundation for our justification. Infused righteousness is not what justifies us. Why? 
if infused righteousness was what, if God says, I have to look at your infused righteousness to see if I'm going to save you and bring you into heaven, what does that mean? It means you're not getting into heaven until you actually are perfectly righteous. Do, do, you, do you see that? And so Protestants have traditionally believed throughout church history that we, 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 we do believe in here to imputed righteousness. We do adhere and believe in infused righteousness. But God doesn't judge us based on our infused righteousness because otherwise none of us would, would have hope. Right? We, we, we would be without hope. Perhaps another way of saying this would simply be this. If I substituted infused righteousness for the term sanctification, we would say that we do not believe that our sanctification is the basis of our justification. We don't believe that, that we are justified on the basis of our works. That's basically what we're saying here. We don't believe that, that we're justified before God based on our behavior. So, would you prefer that your righteous standing before God was dependent on infused righteousness or imputed righteousness? If your standing was on, based on infused righteousness, then you could never stand before God until you were actually, completely, and perfectly, 100% righteous. Now, the problem with that is we've already blown it <laughs> the first time we ever sinned. So, there's no hope of that now. If, on the other hand, your standing before God was dependent upon imputed righteousness, you could stand before God even if your life was not characterized by perfect righteousness. Right? I'm bringing us somewhere. I'm sorry that this might be a little bit. Just hang with me. Okay? Here's what we're saying. Our salvation is based on faith and not by works. That was just a really long way to say that. <laughs> um, let me try to say it another real short way here. Uh, do you do bad things? Anyone? Okay. Yeah, you do. Um, according to the doctrine of infused righteousness, or, or I should say, if you're justification is based on infused righteousness, then you're not ready to go to heaven. I want to show you this. Uh, this is based on uh, an argument that was recently put on uh, Catholic Answers. They have a um, uh, social media feed. And if you guys can just turn to the next one there. Catholic Answers uh, made what they call a logical argument for purgatory. This is just taken straight off of their website or their social media. They said this, there will be no sin or attachment to sin in heaven. I agree with that part so far. Okay. They said we, at least most of us are still sinning. <laughs> um, okay, so... <laughs> At least most of us are still sinning and are attached to sin at the end of this life. Okay? Therefore, there must be a period between death and heaven in which the saved are cleansed of sin 
and their attachment to sin. This is what we call purgatory. So if we could only find a place to be cleansed of sin, that would be really nice, right? Where, where are we cleansed of sin? It's Christ. Okay, do you, do you see this is built on an infused righteousness model? They're being very consistent here, at least, okay? Because the model here is saying your justification is based on, is founded upon, is grounded in your infused righteousness. And so they're logically taking this to the natural conclusion. You end your life not perfectly righteous. And so we've got to figure out some way to deal with that. You've you've got to get rid of that. You see at least the consistency here. Uh, we, we would obviously say this is very wrong, but, but this, they're being consistent with the infused righteousness model. Okay? Their logic here is that you cannot go to heaven until you are actually righteous. You cannot be in God's presence until you're actually holy. Uh, there is no distinction between what you are and what you're declared to be. They're one and the same. You are what you are, and you will stand or fall before God based on that. Okay, um, so let's put it in the form of a question here. In order to stand before God, must you be actually holy and actually perfect, or must you be declared holy or declared perfect? And we would say, as Protestants, that in order to stand before God, we have to be declared holy because we can never be actually holy in our own strength. Which one of you... Which one of us is going to stand up and say, I can stand before God on my own? None of us. Our mouths are stopped. We cannot stand before God because of our great sin. Again, this is a fancy way of saying you're justified by faith alone, not by your works. Your good works do not contribute to your salvation This is the Reformation cry of sola fide, or faith alone. Now, where do we see this doctrine of imputed righteousness in the Bible? There's nothing for us to go on and on and on about this. And this is some fanciful hope. Where do we see in Scripture that our standing before God is based on imputation rather than being infused with righteousness? Okay? I have one, two, three, four, five, six passages. We just preached through the book of Genesis recently, and this is still not working back there, guys. Um, So you'll have to keep going forward for me. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham, we actually spent, I think, four sermons just on Genesis 15, looking at the New Testament data on this. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and what happened? He counted it to him as righteous. This is the language of imputation. Counted, credited. This is imputed righteousness. Abraham believed God, and what happened? He was accounted righteous. It doesn't say that Abraham had to go through this this trial period of time to see if he was perfectly righteous. It simply says he believed and he was saved. This is the gospel. This is what we preach. If you don't know Christ as your savior today, let me just encourage you with this. 
Believe and you'll be saved. That's it. You can't earn it. Genesis 15, 6, imputed righteousness from the beginning of Scripture. Isaiah 53 and verse 11, talking about Jesus here. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be what? Accounted righteous. He's going to make them be accounted righteous. He's going to count them or consider them or declare them to be righteous. He's just going to make it happen. Imputed righteousness. Isaiah 61 and verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. He just covers us. He just puts on that righteous robe. He just gives to us his righteousness. His robes for mine as we sing. That's imputed righteousness. Jeremiah 23 in verse 6. His days Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. (laughs) It's not your righteousness. Who is your righteousness? The Lord. This has nothing to do with you actually becoming righteous. This has to do with the Lord declaring you or making you to be righteous. Romans 4 and verse 3. This, of course, is just rehashing Genesis 15, 6. But it is important to see that the New Testament uh, writers do bring this back up again. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Again, we spent a whole sermon uh, in Romans 4 that was a springboard off of Genesis 15 to talk about what this means. And, And Paul says God is crediting righteousness apart from what? From works. You just counted it. It's nothing to do with being infused. It has everything to do with just being considered or counted or declared to be righteous. And then uh, the last one. This is one of my favorite ones, actually. Um, uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. Uh, I, it's one of my favorite ones because of how just crystal clear it is. I mean, there, there's just... You can't understand this in any other way. Philippians 3, 8 through 9 says, Paul writes, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. That comes through what? The law. But that comes from where? Through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Righteousness comes from God. And and it's not mine. Paul makes this very clear that the righteousness that will get you uh, into God's presence, the righteousness that will put you uh, into heaven for all of eternity, is a righteousness that doesn't belong to you in the first place. Do you see the significance of this? It is a gift. It is inheritance. It it is something that has been called a foreign or an alien righteousness. 
It was credited to you even though you did not possess it inherently. But if you believe that you have to possess it inherently in order to stand before God, then it's all hanging on you. The common thread in all of these verses is that the Lord declares or counts the sinner to be righteous. That's the common thread. Okay, so now all of that was just to prepare us for the rest of the message. We started with a tension. And the tension was given in the form of a question. Is it appropriate to call a believer in Christ a sinner? Or is it appropriate to call a believer in Christ righteous? Now, based on everything that we just saw about imputed righteousness, does it help us answer this question at all? In what way should we refer to ourselves? Should we say, hi, I'm John, I'm a Christian, and I'm a sinner? Say, hi, I'm John, I'm a Christian, and I'm righteous. Should I say, I'm a sinner, or I'm righteous? And the answer is yes. Yes. Okay, so now this is where we get into uh, the title of the message, okay? You can go to the next slide there. Um, I know, I put a Latin phrase in for the title, but I'm sorry. Simul Hustus et peccator is a Latin phrase that Martin Luther used to describe the reality of what we just said. The Latin word simul, uh, anyone know what English word we get from simul? Simultaneous, okay? This means at the same time, okay? Hustus, what does that mean? Justice, just, or righteous, just or righteous. Uh, et, what is et? And, and, and peccator. I think Spanish speakers should know this, right? I think this is Spanish, right? No, <laughs> no, Javier. Sin or sinner. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> I thought it was Spanish. <laughs> okay. All right, so, uh, so at the same time, Simul, Hustus, just or righteous, et and peccator, sinner. Okay, so what does this mean? At the same time, just and a sinner. That's simply what this phrase means. Now, this sounds like a contradiction, right? How can I say that as a Christian, I am at the same time just or righteous, and at the same time I'm a sinner? It sounds like, how can I characterize myself in that way? In what sense could I be both at the same time? The reason that this is not a contradiction is because we are not righteous and sinful in the same way. We are sinners by default, by nature, by the constitution of who we are. 
we are righteous in that this is what God has declared us to be based on what Christ did on the cross. This is not insanity on God's part. God is not just saying, uh, I'm going to just make up something that doesn't exist. It took the death of Christ for you as a Christian to be called righteous. You, you, you realize that, the, that, that what Christ did on the cross was not just some game. It wasn't just, uh, I'm just going to do something to show that I love people generically. This was not, by the way, as much as I appreciate the writings of C.S. Lewis, this was, he didn't die on the cross because of the ransom to Satan theory, which you do see, by the way, come out in Chronicles of Narnia. He, he, Satan didn't have a claim on us. He's saying, man, what do I do? Satan, if Jesus dies, will you give him back to me then? <laughs> this is not the arrangement that was going on, on on the cross. Christ died because he was wearing your sinful robes. And you live because you are wearing Christ's righteous robes. It is upon that base. God will never violate his justice to do anything. He will never dismiss your sins arbitrarily. Only if it's paid for legally. And that was through what Christ did on the cross. So God, so, so us call, um, being referred to as righteous has nothing to do with God being arbitrary. It has everything to do with him upholding his justice. We are righteous in that God has declared us to be righteous. As a Christian, you are at both and the same time a sinner and righteous. You actually do keep sinning. You continue to sin. 1 John 1.8, what does it say? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Don't you dare say I've arrived. Don't, don't you dare say I'm there. You still, it is still legitimate to call you a sinner and to call me a sinner. You are a sinner. You are not perfect. You are unworthy. You are not holy. And what else? You are righteous. You're righteous. It is a shortcoming of ours, mine as well, that we are not all in tears at this moment. The God who inflicts just wrath. And who are we? The sinners, the scum of the world who deserve every ounce of his pure anger toward us in hell for eternity. We all deserve it. 
Not a one of us can be let off the hook. And yet he sent Christ, and now he says, you are righteous. What love! We, we can be so fickle sometimes. The wonder of the cross. This should push us to deepen our worship of Christ. And deepen our love for what he's done. Because we can say we are righteous. How can this be? How can we be both? Because of the doctrine of Simul Hustus et Peccator. We are righteous in a different sense than we are a sinner. Both are true. And time doesn't permit me to go on in this, but I had uh, explored this a little bit yesterday uh, with some assistance and found that uh, even Augustine has his own Simul Hustus et Peccator. This was not just an invention of the Reformation. This is something that characterized church history. God's standard is perfection, nothing less. You must be perfectly righteous in order to be in God's presence. And Christ's atonement is the only way you can be perfectly righteous. You already spoiled your chances the very first time you sinned. You spoiled it before then, your sin nature. But if you trust in Christ, this is an appeal now. If you trust in Christ, you will be perfectly righteous and will have met that standard of God's justice, not because of you, but because of Christ. Romans 4 in verse 3. Again, we saw this already, but I want to emphasize it again. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. Anyone who knows Abraham knows that he sinned pre-Genesis 15 and post-Genesis 15. In what sense can he be said to be righteous? Abraham did not have infused righteousness, at least perfectly. So, since Abraham was still a sinner, and he continued to sin, and we looked at many, many, many of these examples when we preached through Genesis, since Abraham was still a sinner, and he continued to keep on sinning, in what sense could God say, you're righteous, Abraham, when Abraham wasn't righteous? On the basis of imputation, at the, at the same time, just and a sinner. Abraham didn't have to go through purgatory to work off those extra sins because God just declared it to be through what Christ has done. I want to look at um, a passage here uh, that I think helps to reflect this idea 
of at the same time just and a sinner. Uh, one, of the, one of the best statements, I think, <clears throat> on this is from Romans chapter 7. Because you would say, okay, if that's true, what would be a good way of finding this out in Scripture? If it is true to say that a believer can be at the same time just and a sinner, then we would expect to find passages in the Bible where you have believers who are justified also being classified as being sinful. And we have that. One of the foremost examples is Romans 7, beginning in verse 15. Many of you know this. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. Paul's talking as a a redeemed individual here. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He sounds insane. What does he say? Wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh serve the law of sin. Paul pictures, this is his Christian life. Paul is saying, as a Christian, I'm still struggling with sin. At the same time, just and a sinner. I want to, let's... um. What, what I did was I took the high, some of the highlights of this passage here, and I've got what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten statements that I pulled out of Romans 7 that we just read. And I want to show you how Paul is describing his Christian life. We just read it, but let's highlight it, okay? So the first one is he says, sin dwells within me. Um. Then he says, can you put that up on the screen there, back there? It says, sin dwells with me. Then he says, nothing good dwells in me. <laughs> then he says, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Then he says, I do not do the good I want. Then he says, the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Then he says, sin dwells within me. Then he says, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Then he says, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Then he says, wretched man that I am. I'm a wretched man. Then he says, with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This doesn't look very hopeful. (laughs) What in the world is going on with Paul? I mean, man, we're light years ahead of him, right? I mean, we don't struggle with sin the way he did. This guy sounds like... This is the sinner part, the peccator part. But what about the Houston part or the righteousness part? All right, do me a favor. In your Bible, 
at the end of chapter 7 in Romans. So Romans 7 at the end. Get your pen out and write two words. Keep reading. Okay. I know I've lamented this to you before. And I'm going to continue to lament this to you uh, as long as I continue preaching. Um, the chapter break between Romans 7 and Romans 8 has got to be the lousiest chapter break that anyone has ever come up with. Okay. Now, keep in mind, chapter breaks are not inspired. Okay. The Apostle Paul did not write, okay, verse 25, da, 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 da. Okay. This is something that we did later as a convention. Okay. <clears throat> you read chapter 7, you don't close your Bible when you get to the last verse of chapter 7. You read the first verse of chapter 8, okay? So, write, keep reading at the bottom of that verse, okay? Um, Look at chapter 8. We just read all of that about all of this sin that is characterizing him. And in Romans 8, 1, here's what we read. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. After that list, are you serious, Paul? Are are you kidding me? You're going to write all of those things about how much of a wretched person you are, and then the very next thing you're going to say is there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus? Where's the purgatory in that? It's not because he has declared us to be righteous. We can talk about this in the sense of I'm a sinner and also in the sense of I am righteous. How about we say it this way? By God's great grace and mercy, your sin does not get in the way of your justification. This is the mercy of our God. All of Romans 7 can be true, and at the same time, Romans 8 1 is true. You can be one who wrestles with sin, and at the same time, you can say confidently, there is no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ Jesus. What hope? What joy? What freedom? What gospel assurance? What love could possibly do this? What kind of a God would sacrifice himself for his own people and then call them to himself and not hold them accountable for their sins? What joy we have to bask in? What thrills there are in Christ? When you read Romans 8.1, your heart should soar. It should leap with joy. As we wrap up here today, I'll kind of land the plane with uh, one more statement from uh, Catholic Answers here. And I want to read to you, um, they have an article, they have a lot of articles on their website. Um, But here's an excerpt from one of them. It says, Luther's famous notion of Simul Hustus at Peccator 
or at the same time just and sinner, is another error rooted in leaving man completely out of the equation when it comes to his own justification. It means, in effect, man's justification is accomplished extrinsic to him. It is. It is. Extrinsic means external to him. This is the gospel. What does Jonah say? Salvation is what? Of the Lord. That's extrinsic to the man. That is external from the man. You want to go arrogantly say, I can do this? No. So let's explore this for a second here. If you reject Simul Hustis et Peccator, or at the same time just and sinner, then you are in a predicament. If you reject this doctrine, then here's what this means. You are not holy until you are actually perfectly holy. It means that you are not righteous until you are actually righteous. It means that you are either a sinner or righteous, but you're not both. If you reject that doctrine, then you're either a sinner or you're righteous, but you're not both. You are one or the other. If that is true, then who can say, I can stand in God's presence? I can get in God's presence. A rejection of this doctrine of simulhusis et peccator, at the same time just and a sinner, a rejection of this doctrine produces one of two things. Okay? You want to know what happens when you reject this doctrine? There's going to be one of two things that it's going to produce. It's either going to produce arrogance. You see how it's going to produce that? Or it's going to produce hopelessness. Or, or, or just a burying your head in the sand. I guess you could do a third one and say, I'm just not going to try to think about this. But anyone who tries to think about it, it's going to produce one of two things. What was Luther's, by the way? Hopelessness. And thank God for his hopelessness because the Lord used him in a mighty way uh, through that to find justification by faith alone. Um, it produces, it could produce arrogance if you think that you could overcome your sinfulness and become totally and actually holy by your own contribution. Guess what you are? Arrogant. If you can say, I have produced this in whole or in part, you are arrogant. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, so that no one can boast. Um, it can also produce hopelessness. If you realize that you can't overcome your own sinfulness and you realize you'll never see the Lord, right? 
So you can be arrogant saying, oh, I can make this. Or you can be hopeless and saying, there's no way I can make this. On the other hand, understanding the truth of Scripture, particularly the one we're talking about today, eliminates both arrogance and hope. Right? If you understand this doctrine, you can't be arrogant and you can't be hopeless. It eliminates arrogance for this reason. Because you are forced to cry out, Oh Christ! Oh Christ! You have done it all. Or as the song goes, Nothing in my hands I bring, Simply to thy cross I cling. So it eliminates arrogance. And it eliminates hopelessness because you are forced to cry out this. If I have Christ's righteousness, then how could I be lost? It is Christ's merits that God judges, not my own. May I plead with you today that if you do not know Christ, that you repent and know Christ so that you can be at the same time just and a sinner so that you can have Christ's righteousness imputed to your account. I have uh, four points of application. <laughs> Number one, and I know I've gone a little long today, so I apologize about that. Um, I'll blame it on Luke for the extra song that he <laughs> added. <laughs> um, Number one, because of this doctrine, and I just didn't want to write out Simon Hughes' that peccador every time, because we're at the same time Justin Sinner. Because of this doctrine, you do not have to live with a guilty conscience any longer. By the way, parents teach this to your children. Your kids don't have to live with a guilty conscience because of what Christ has done. Model that to them in the way that you forgive. When you forgive your children of something they've done, don't hang that over their head for the rest of their lives. You, you, you are preaching against the gospel when you do that. Model the gospel for them. Um, number two, because of this doctrine, you are free and do not need to earn your salvation. What hope enjoys that? Number three, because of this doctrine, your inheritance is not put at risk. <laughs> your eternal inheritance in heaven is not at risk. Because it's not based on you, it's based on Christ alone. Number four, because of this doctrine, fervently preach the gospel knowing that anyone can be saved. Stop saying, I don't know if I could save that that person. God couldn't save you if it was on you. How does God save us? Based on the righteousness of Christ. Here's what you're doing. When you say, some people say, usually say it's about themselves. I'm too bad of a sinner. God can't save me. You know what they're saying? You know what they're really saying? God is not pleased with Christ, so he couldn't save me. Are you kidding me? It's an attack on the gospel itself. May this truth of Scripture comfort us and encourage us to press on in the confidence that our Savior, Jesus Christ, loves us, died for us, and gave himself for us. May we go out, continue to preach the gospel for the salvation of souls, and may we be people of the word encouraged by all of the riches that we have in Christ. Thank you, God, for today. 
and the gospel truth you've given. We pray that you might help us to love you, to be characterized by increasing growth in Christ's likeness. We know that you do not leave us uh, after we are saved. You continue to change us, and so I pray you'd continue to do that. In Christ's name, amen.